Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is from Philippians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1, and this can be found on page 1179 of the Church Bibles. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast On the day of Christ, that I did not run or labour for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we had uh, six marvellous carol services, and yet we still haven't got to Christmas. And it's uh, my job this Sunday evening and next Sunday evening, a great privilege to, uh, as it were, help us to look again at Christmas and to move into a new year. I've entitled my uh, talk uh, In Three Minds, one of these strange titles really. I have to think afterwards why I did have that title, but I do remember now I had the title In Three Minds. That is, lots of us are in two minds about all sorts of things, never make up our mind about it. But in a sense, uh, the Christians are always in three minds, and you'll find in this passage in Philippians 2, which we're now going to look at, uh, you'll see the three minds that keep coming up. We have to use our mind. It talks about being like-minded in verse 2. And in verse 5, though the word says attitude in our NIV, the actual word is mind. Your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That is, we're challenged to use our minds. There's a lot of sentiment about Christmas and nothing wrong with sentiment, but we want to use our minds tonight. First of all, may I suggest to you, and putting it in a 
bad context, that there are three minds about Christmas that we must oppose. There is a satanic mind which is determined to misrepresentation, which wants to rid Christi- the Christian, take, take the Christian message out of Christmas and misrepresent it completely. Just before uh, I set out to church tonight, I was looking at the Barnabas Fund, uh, which I commend to you, who do a great work amongst the persecuted church. And there's a pathetic picture of a, a little lad and the cross, his face is the, is the words, stop killing us, please. A child in Pakistan where militant Islam is determined to rid their nation of their Christian heritage. And we're living in a world where we've got to be sensible. That's part of one of the minds. There is a satanic misrepresentation of Christmas and we must oppose it. There's a superficial and commercial representation that we want, in a sense, to scrap and start again. I I once had a theory. Why don't we, as a church, decide to change Christmas from December, say, to the middle of... uh, of Jude or something. Let's be, let's be awkward. Let's have a, a real Christian Christmas and let the world have the, the, the uh, December the 25th. We have no idea when our Lord was born. His chance that it was uh, December 25th is one in 365 and a quarter. We have no idea when he was born. So we can scrap it and start again. But no, it wouldn't work. We want to be around and making our impact uh, where things are happening. Uh, Then there is the sentimental view of Christmas that we wish to deepen. A great deal of sentiment around about the place. And we we shouldn't, we can't get rid of sentiment altogether. I don't know about you, it only, certain carols uh, move move me. I I start when I hear these carols, the music's enough to make me sort of get this feeling inside. Even the first Noel, just singing that. The number of times I march around the parish with young people uh, and lots of young people singing carols. So there's a kind of feeling about it all. And uh, when it came to when it came to yesterday, watching a rather torrid match at Hillsborough, the best bit of the game was the uh, the, the brass band that played Heart the Herald Angels Sing. That was a, the best bit of the thing. And I. I muttered to my neighbours a sermon in every line, but nobody understood what I was getting at. But there it was. You only need that to get you excited, you see. I'm all for a right sentiment. But the challenge of this passage is to use our mind because the world uh, is all intent on misrepresenting, opposing, and needing to be deepened in the Christian experience. So let's look at the mind. Three minds. There are three minds here. There's the mind of Christ, in verses 6 to 8, there's the mind of God in verses 9 to 11. There's the mind of the Christian in the rest. And the challenge of this great picture of who Jesus really was is to make us marvel. There's another verse which comes in 2 Corinthians where we're reminded that though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. And uh, we'll be singing about that later on. He was rich, became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. And why did Paul write those words? To challenge the Corinthians to give. Why does Paul write these words in Philippians? He's writing from prison. Next week we'll see, when I come next Sunday evening, we'll be looking at John. And John spent his exile in Patmos. Uh, I was privileged not a few years ago to preach in Samos. And in Samos you can look across and see this bleak Patmos. That's where John finished his days. And yet he can write the passage we'll look at next week. 
And here's Paul in prison when he's writing these words and he can challenge these Christians whom he loved very deeply in Philippi to remember, first of all, the perfect example of Christ. He wants to bring us back to him so that he might teach these Christians and us to have the mind of Christ and to live in love and humility. There are three therefores in the passage in front of you. If you're very clever, you'll find three, but if you really want, you'll only find two, but I assure you there is a third one to which we come in a moment. When you get the word therefore, you all know the, when you see therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? You all know that line. And there are three therefores. Verse 12, there's a therefore. Verse nine, there's a therefore. And verse one, though for some reason I know not why, it's not in the text. I assure you, the Greek text has at the beginning of verse one, the little Greek word, three-letter Greek word, which means therefore. So somebody here with great vision can somehow begin to write. If you can find a version of Philippians 2 that has the word therefore in, I'd be glad to know. I shall use it from then on. But it's there in the original. Three therefores. And when we look at these three therefores, our mind will be challenged to follow the way of Christ. So three thoughts for your mind tonight. In a world where the mind is set against the Christian gospel, we want the mind of Christ, the mind of God, the mind of the Christian. Verses six to eight, the mind of Christ. First of all, there's a sovereign's rule. We sing, lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Staggering truth. And yet that's based on these words here. For these words here tell us in verse 6 that he was in very nature God. Literally he was God through and through. And because he was truly and fully God, nothing less than that, then he was willing to leave that behind. He didn't grasp it to himself but made himself nothing. He still remains God through and through. He can speak himself. Uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, said Jesus. Nowhere did he ever claim to be anything less than God. He was through and through God, which is what makes Christmas remarkable. We're not just celebrating a birth of a wonderful man. We're celebrating the birth of God coming to the world. He came in a virgin womb and he would leave in a virgin tomb for he died, he was put in a tomb in which nobody had ever been laid before. And between those two great moments, there's a drama of the sovereign rule. It's because he was what he claimed to be that Christmas is meaningful. That's why we've got to battle to keep it and to revive it. The sovereign's rule. Secondly, in the mind of Christ, the servant's role, he was willing to become a servant. Uh, again I I don't apologise but if you you don't like alliteration I'm too old to change and I shall alliterate to the very end which is next Sunday so there you are Uh, I I can't avoid it well the sovereign's rule is followed by the servant's role if you're very clever you can work on the next one the sovereign's rule, the servant's role what was the servant's role? he became says verse 7 he took the very nature of a servant The actual word, Greek word, is doulos, slave. He became a slave. He was willing to be a slave. He left behind his equality with God. There's a lovely 
touching moment in John 17 when Jesus on the way to the cross prays a marvellous prayer. We're privileged to have this prayer. As Jesus uniquely goes to the cross, the Son of God, on his way back home but through death, he prays that prayer when he thanks God for the glory he had with you before the world was made. The glory he had with God before the world was made. Just imagine how marvellous that must be and what it meant to leave it behind. And he was willing to become a slave in order that we might find eternal life. He was through and through God, but he became very much one of us. He was truly human. You remember, away in a manger, no crying he makes. Of course he cried. We were singing the carol today about the deep and dreamless sleep. Of course he dreamt. Uh, He was one of us. He was thoroughly, apart from sin, one of us. So he took on the servant's role in order that he might win salvation for every one of us. He was able to take our place on the cross because he was one of us. He was able to deal with our sins because he was truly God, truly God and truly man. The sovereign rule, the servant's role and the saviour's road. You see, he stooped, it says, not just to be a servant. There in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. They didn't kill Jesus. He died. Very straightforward. The gospel's quite clear. Jesus gave up his life. John 10, 18. I can, bring, I can lay my life down and I can take it up again, which is what he did. He wasn't killed. He died. He gave himself. He went to death, even death on a cross. That was the whole purpose of his life, that he was willing to go that way. Uh, Years ago, uh, on one of my trips to London, uh, uh, just before Christmas time, and I, uh, I, it was one of those years when we hadn't got all our Christmas cards. That's not unusual. And so I was deputed by my good wife to get some extra Christmas cards. And so standing on uh, the station in London, suddenly discovered they were selling cards for charity. And I, that's marvellous. I shall, I shall come back and get full marks from my good wife for a change, and I'll buy these cards. So I got a whole, before I bought them, I thought I'd better look at the picture on the front. And uh, I did. And the, the, the students who were selling them said, they're not selling very well, these cards. So I said, oh dear, why not? Well, you see, it's the picture on the front. I thought the picture on the front was what lovely. It so Jesus in the stable and the sun was picking up the, these, the, the, the rafters and the roof and over the face of the little baby was the cross, the shadow of the cross and said the perceptive student I don't think they like the cross at Christmas how appallingly true you went to Jesus without the cross and yet that's what it's all about and in uh, a couple of days time or however many days it is uh, on Christmas Eve we shall be in a church down south on Christmas Eve not here But I know there'll be loads of people here on Christmas Eve as you start Christmas Day and what you'll be doing? You'll be breaking bread and drinking wine. You'll remember Christ's death day on his birthday. There is no other human being that ever lived of whom that could ever be true. 
For ultimately, as far as Jesus was concerned, his death is what he came for. He came to die, even death on the cross. That's significant. It wasn't a, a heroic martyr's death. We can thank God for martyrs down the years who've died heroic deaths, but it was a, it was a shameful death. Whoever dies on a cross was cursed, says Scripture. It was a stigma. He became a curse for us. And the Saviour's road led that way. And that's why Paul can use this remarkable illustration to tell these Christians at Philippi who were arguing, who had lost out on the, the true humility of the Christian faith, he can use the Lord as a supreme example. You see at the beginning of the chapter, verse 3, he's talking about selfish ambition and vain conceit. Please don't go on like that. I thank God for this church and for Margaret and myself over many years, not least since his retirement. The wonderful fellowship and love of this church is so significant. But it ain't perfect. No church is. And the challenge is that we should all be very careful that by the grace of God we live out that kind of life. I'll have more next week from John on that theme. Live out that kind of life of mutual love and care not in conceit, but in the humility of Christ. We should be even more effective than we are. May God help us to follow the Saviour's road, which was the way to the cross. So we looked at the, the mind of Christ, the sovereign's rule, the servant's role, the Saviour's road. What about the mind of God? That comes in verses 9 to 11. It's the, what God the Father does. There was that little child who saw a picture of the cross and said to his mother, Mummy, if God had been there, he wouldn't have let them do it, would he? Which was, of course, a supremely wrong comment, but understandable. It's because God was there that it happened. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And right from the beginning, this was planned. We had our marvellous carol services, we don't nowadays have the sort of nine lessons and carols, but long tradition, nine lessons and carols, and they always start with Genesis 3. Nice to break with tradition, but there's a point in the tradition. The nine lessons and carols started with Genesis 3, where the promise that was that out of the seed of woman would come the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. And that right from the beginning, God was sovereignly working so that one day... Satan would be defeated, but defeated when God's son on the cross took our place and defeated Satan at that great moment. His rule in one sense was over. It was determined and finished. And so uh, the mind of God, God was in, it was planned from the beginning. And just two thoughts about this mind of God. It's a cause for exaltation and it's a, call to adoration it's a cause for exaltation that every time in the new testament when you get this theme of man's sin paul would preach on the day of pentecost all about man's wickedness but god and here you've got this great but god god in his own sovereignty exalted jesus to the highest place when that you look at that word exalted 
Please, I've always said one of these days, it's never going to happen now, it's never going to happen, I'm going to start a Greek class. I'm too old now to start a Greek class in this church. But if you, if you do the Greek class of uh, that verse, if you look at that verse in, in, in the Greek, it would tell you that the word God exalted is the same as the word is lifted up. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up on the cross, will draw all men to me. So God was Christ was lifted up, Christ was exalted, the same word, and there was no way back to the crown but via the cross. And so God exalts Jesus. God brings him. It would have been a miracle if God had stopped them killing him. It would have been a miracle if Christ had never died from the cross, but it would have been the end of our hope. The greater miracle, would he allowed them to kill him, but he brought him out from the tomb and when was the victory won good friday easter day both together he was exalted on the cross and he was lifted up into heaven and that's great cause for exaltation is that in which we rejoice as christian the mind of god a cause for exaltation and a call to adoration that at the name of jesus every knee should bow no, I tread very carefully here. I don't want to offend anybody, but I was brought up in Lancashire in a very, what they called low church. Lancashire, Anglicanism was Lancashire low. We're always low church. I don't know what a low churchman means, but we're, I was a low churchman. Uh, if you're a Christian, you should be a high churchman, have high views of church, but we didn't have any kind of ceremonial. I went off a very raw young man to Oxford and I went to study. And I always remember going to the first service. I had never seen the lights before. There was one student next to me. Every time the name Jesus was mentioned, he nodded his head. He sort of went on. Doing, I thought I got quite mesmerized because it was a hymn in which the word Jesus came every, third, every other line. You know, and this, this chap would nod away. And then when it came to the end of the service, it was even worse. At the end of the service, I tripped over him. He had to go out into the, into the aisle and genuflect and bow towards the east. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I tripped over him. And uh, I learned something. Now, please, should that be something you love to do, uh, feel free to do it. But uh, all I'd want to say is, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's not what it's all about. It's not a ritual of nodding your head. It's not a ritual of going down and genuflecting. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. One day, it will. Do you ever, when you see the petty tyrants of our day, and there are plenty of them around in our world, who struck the stage of history, who command the death of Christians, the murder of innocent people, one day... They will bow the knee. They will not have the last word. That's what it's all about. Not to do with nodding our head or bowing. It's to that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. One day he will be seen to be Lord. That Jesus who came as a baby in humility will one day come again in glorious majesty. And what we do with him in his humility will depend on what he does with us. In his majesty. Yes, people can ignore Christmas. They can misrepresent Christmas. But one day, there will be a day when they will meet the one whom they chose to ignore. How important that we should bow the knee now. Not in a ritual, but in accepting his lordship. So that we don't, we don't leave him behind when Christmas is gone. We go with him and he is lord of our lives.
the mind of God, a cause for exaltation, a call to adoration. Finally, the mind of the Christian. And the mind of the Christian in the first five verses of this chapter and verses 12 onwards. Again, you get the therefore in verse 12. It's a call to unselfish living and it's a call to self-giving. And as we move on from Christmas into all the challenging days ahead, what a call to unselfish living. You notice one of the words there, it's a call. What a difference it would make if we were all like verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That's that lovely old Greek word I've mentioned in this pulpit, gongousmon, a lovely, and a lovely word in it, sort of, what's the right word? It's onomatopoeic, gongousmon. None of this grumbling and moaning. I hope we're not a church with grumblers. The trouble with being a preacher is I have no doubt that in a few days' time when, I, when Margaret finds me grumbling about something, she'll remind me, you were preaching about this on Sunday. I wait for it, I wait for it. And she'll be right, of course, quite right. That was my water bottle, never mind. Uh, all is well. No, no, uh, unselfish, none of this grumbling and moaning. But instead of all that, uh, the picture of, of, of the early verses, verse 3, not acting in selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considering others better than yourself. The whole way of life, of unselfish living, not grumbling, and uh, the way of life bringing glory to Christ. Unselfish living, and finally, self-giving. Just note these verses as I come to a close. There in verse 16, you hold out the word of life. You shine like stars in the universe. Verse 17, you're willing to pour out your life like a drink offering. This is the way Paul knows he's going. He's in cross, he's in prison, he recognises that his future is the way of the cross. So it's a whole matter of self-giving, pouring out his life, holding out the word of life. And in a very real sense, and it will come again in in John's view next week, in a very real sense, the more we as a Christian community, here in Fullwood, that means still so much to us, Margaret and myself, in the congregation, the more we uh, live out this kind of life of self-giving, of humility, of love, counting others better than ourselves, the more we should be able to proclaim the word of life in the community. If they recognise there's a difference about the way we behave with each other, then they'll listen. If they've every reason to suspect that we're no different, that by and large, like everybody else, we grumble, we get on each other's nerves, we can't get on together, they'll just have one more excuse of not listening. But if the quality of the way we live goes alongside the word of life that we proclaim, living the Christian life is not good enough without speaking out. Holding out the word of life does mean speaking. I sometimes meet people who say, well, if everybody, everybody just was kind and nice, we wouldn't have to preach the gospel. Oh, yes, you would. If we're kind and nice and we never speak about the Lord, they'll think it's just because we're nice people. But if we recognise it's only because of him, if they know that on our lips we can speak about Jesus, they'll recognise the difference. And we hold out the word of life Unselfish living, 
going alongside self-giving. And so the call comes to each one of us to be ready to offer him our lives. What can I give him? We sometimes sing in that carol, poor as I am. Sometimes think hypocrites we are. We, this wealthy congregation, say, what can I give him poor as I am? But spiritually we are, and we come to him poor. What shall I give him? Give him my heart. This is a challenge of Christmas that I offer to the Lord afresh my life, my talents, my gifts, my future. I, th- I cannot end without uh, a quote which I've often given, but it, it fits in. You'll understand in a minute why it fits in just the moment. Uh, one of my great heroes as a young man was the great Christian missionary C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd played cricket for England. Uh, and uh, this is why it's kind of relevant at the moment if you're following the Ashes series, if you're feeling miserable about the Ashes. Well, it was very miserable. C.T. Studd, if you're not interested in cricket, just hold on for a few minutes. I'll, 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 it'll, it'll end. Uh, C.T. Studd uh, played in the very first Test match against Australia. He was a not-out batsman when England first lost the Ashes. And the other end batting, the other end, was a Yorkshireman called Pete, Edward Pete. And Pete had a slog and got out when he should have defended. And when somebody asked him why he did that, he said, I couldn't trust Mr. Studd. Poor Mr. Studd. And Mr. Studd was a a famous batsman at the other end, but he was not out when we lost the ashes. Anyway, he became a great missionary. China and India. And here were the words of C.T. Studd. Very important to me. I became a Christian on these words. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He gave up his wealth. He was a wealthy man. He gave up his career as an England cricketer. He went out in terrible conditions to take the gospel to parts of the world where they'd never heard it. But you see, it seemed to him the right thing to do. Jesus Christ, God, died for me then what can I do give him back my life and be willing? And as a young man in my teens, mad keen on cricket, a reasonable uh, player at the game, an enthusiast in the Lancashire League where I was living in, in the time, the fact that anybody gave up cricket to become a missionary was really something. Playing cricket for England, the ambition I might have had, No, of course not. But I knew a man who played for England like that and he gave it up to follow Christ. And I've been challenged. And I asked myself the question, if Jesus Christ is God, did I believe that? I did. And did he die for me? Well, I suppose I did believe that too. What am I going to do about it? And at the age of 16, I decided I would give myself back to him. And all that's followed of the long years of Christian service and ministry, in a way, hinged there. I would love to think that as I come to the end of my ministry, there might be somebody here of the age of 16 or thereabouts who might be wondering what the future for you is. How lovely it would be if you could echo the words of C.T. Studd and say, no sacrifice too great. Following Christ, in a sense, is no sacrifice, but it seems like it. And my prayer is there are some folk who, perhaps as a result of what I've said tonight, will recognise that following him is the way to find life 
He gave his life that we might live. And he wants us to respond by giving our lives to him that others might live also. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we do believe that Jesus is your son, that he did die for us on that cross. We thank you that he came, that we might have life. Help us to enjoy that life and to go out to share it with others. Help us in the spirit of Christ to live worthily, to live lovingly and to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and take out the word of life that others may come to know you too. In Jesus' name, amen.